Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, well, uh, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And as you uh, notice, not only uh, did I fail to send an email this week, I even failed to have a psalm reader. So that was the awkward uh, pause there. I was like, what are we waiting for? And then I was like, oh, we're waiting for a psalm. Sorry. Um, but I'm sure that you all figure that, you know, we're going to be spending time in the first few verses of Ephesians 4. Uh, to be more precise, we're going to spend time in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. But before I read them, before we read them, I want to do a little uh, thought exercise. So imagine for a second that you had all the power in the world available to you. What would be the first thing that you would accomplish? If you had all the power, what would be the first thing that you would accomplish? What would be the first thing that you would seek? Okay, you, you don't have to answer me, but let me just say, if the first thing that, that came to your mind is like, oh, I would resolve all of, my, all of my financial problems, or I would finally get that one thing that I need to get done, well, let me tell you, we have some work to do. That's, uh, <laughs> we, are, we are still thinking too much about ourselves, but let me redirect those thoughts a little bit. God has all the power in the universe, right? He has absolute power. And this is what the Bible, this is what the letter to the Ephesians say, says that is his plan. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 9, you know, Paul is talking about the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And he says that one of those blessings is that God is making known to us, verse 9, making known to us, the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is God's purpose? What is God's ultimate purpose? He has all the power in the universe. And what does he want to accomplish? He wants to unify all things. In Christ Jesus, things on earth and things, or things in heaven, things on earth, he wants to unite them all together in Christ. Or to use the language that Paul uses in Colossians, he is through the cross of Jesus, he is reconciling all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven. So now that we have been redirected a little bit, and, and now, now we know that the right answer to that question would be, okay, if you had all the power in the world, what would you want to accomplish? Well, the answer should be the unifying of all things, the unifying of heaven and earth, the unification of everything in Christ uh, uh, for the glory of God. Obviously, you know, that's ultimately what God is going to do. But now let me ask you a follow-up question. Now that we know that, you know, the, the, the purpose of God is to unify all things to himself, how would you accomplish that? How would you accomplish unity? 
If you had the power of God, which is one of the, the things that Paul prays for the Ephesians, that they would know the power of God. If you had the love of Christ, which is one of the things that Paul prays for the Ephesians, that they would know and understand the love of Christ, how would you accomplish the unification of heaven and earth? How would you start? Well, he continues in Ephesians 1, and he's pray- as he is praying for the Ephesians that they would understand the power of God, he says in chapter 1, verse, uh, let's just start from verse 19, he is praying that they would understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So how is God accomplishing the unifying of all things, well, he decided to start with the church. He decided to start with uh, uh, making out of two people. Remember, we studied this when he talked about, you know, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he started by unifying these two peoples, these two cultures. He started by making out of the two men, as the, as the analogy goes in chapter 2, and making one, making a new people for himself, a new, uh, 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 a new temple for himself. And so he is starting that unification of all things. He is starting with the church. So now let me ask you yet another follow-up question. Okay, now we know that God's purpose is the unification of all things. Now we know that he is starting to unify all of those things through the church or with the church, since Jesus is the head of the church. Well, how is he accomplishing this unification of all things in Jesus through the church? Or how would you do it? If it were up to you, what would you do? Would you appoint charismatic leaders? Would you appoint leaders that have, you know, all of these really awesome uh speech qualities and 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 uh they're really good at rebuking their their enemies would you appoint leaders that that reflect the leadership of the world well in this passage today we are told how Christ is accomplishing that unification of all things and it's actually and I'm going to sound a little clickbaity here but it's not what you think it's actually surprising. You won't believe number four. No, sorry, that's super clickbait. Uh, but uh, let's read this passage and then uh, we will pray. So this is the word of God. Can I ask you to stand for the reading of God's word? Chapter four, verse one says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we praise you for you alone are worthy of our praise. We worship you. We give you honor and glory. God, thank you for revealing the mystery of your will to us, your plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in your Son, Jesus. And thank you, God, for making Jesus the head of all things, to, for having uh, raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at your right hand, far above all rulers and authorities and dominions, and you have made him head over all things to the church. Thank you, God, that we, your church, we get to be a part of this incredible, gigantic purpose of unifying all things, of redeeming and reconciling the world to you. God, I pray that you would give us understanding of this passage today, that you'd give us humility to understand, to receive your word. I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, God, to receive your word I pray that you'd make your son Jesus very real to us and that we would be transformed into your image, into the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul is writing, Paul is moving on to the extremely practical section of this letter. So, you know, like we talked last Sunday, first. The first half of the letter is loaded with, with uh, a deep, rich, beautiful theology. And now he is moving on to a more practical section. Not that, I mean, ultimately all of it is theology and all of it is practical. But, you know, that we see kind of that division there, especially in, in verse 1 where it says, I therefore, right, that therefore word, we know that it points us back to everything that he has just said. So it's like he's saying, everything that I just told you in the last, they didn't have chapters back then, but everything I just told you in the last three chapters, therefore, in light of this, this is my urge to you. This is my appeal to you. And so he is moving to this very practical section. Uh, but before we even get to that, to the exhortation, I just want to point something out. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. And this is not the first time that he, he's, he's uh, used this terminology. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. And I just wanted to point uh, out from this phrase uh, a couple of things. One of them is, this really speaks of Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty, of God's rule, of God's authority. He understood that even though he was a prisoner of say, the Roman Empire, or he was a prisoner of Caesar, or he was a prisoner of the Jews, or, you know, whatever the situation was, 
he understood that ultimately, because Christ, because God is the one who is in control, he is a prisoner for the Lord. He is a prisoner uh, uh, of Christ. His imprisonment is ultimately under the sovereign control of God. And I think that this, it should be very helpful to us because it, um, when we are going through difficult situations, we should be able to say with Paul, I, a person with chronic illness for the Lord, right? Like we should be able to look at our circumstances and say, this is for the Lord. This is in God's hands. This is under God's sovereignty or I, an underpaid employee for the Lord. Right or or I an unemployed person not because not by choice but actually because I cannot find a job for the Lord or I a struggling homeschooling mom for the Lord or or you know you you name it whatever circumstance that you encounter yourself in that you are struggling through you can say I blank for the Lord because we understand that ultimately God is the one in control. God is the one who sovereignly has us in that circumstance and he is teaching us something. He is, he is giving us grace through it. But then here's the other, the other aspect of this. I believe that Paul is not only saying, I am a prisoner under God's sovereignty, but I think he's also saying, I am a, an actual prisoner of Christ. Like I am actually bound to Christ. And I know that that, you know, thinking about it, of being a prisoner of Christ might sound a little too negative. But when you think about it, we have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed with the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the price that God paid for us. We belong to him. We are his, I know this might, you might not like this wording, but we are his property. We belong to him. And therefore, I think it is right for us to say, I am a prisoner of Christ. I am bound to him. He has called me to follow me, to deny myself, to take up my cross every day and follow him. I belong to him. I am a prisoner of the Lord. And whatever he asks me to do, I will do. Wherever he sends me, if he sends me to Spain, if he sends me to, the, to our homeless neighbors, wherever he sends me, I will go because I am a prisoner of the Lord. This also shows that Paul was not a, he was not an armchair theologian, right? He was not writing deep theology from the comfort of his uh, office, you know, by the, by the Mediterranean Ocean and just, you know, looking out at the seagulls and just thinking about deep theology. He was in prison when he wrote these things. And he was so convinced of these realities that he wrote that he was willing to be in prison and he gladly was there because he knew the calling that he had received from God. And he was willing to walk in a manner worthy of that calling that he had received. I've encountered people that, you know, when we go into the rich theology of chapters one through three, they kind of diss it as like, oh, you know, this is kind of, this is kind of boring. Let's get to something more practical. Give me something a little more. Uh, I don't know, something that makes me feel a little bit better or that, it, or that gets me kind of more excited. Well, this was the kind of stuff that got Paul excited. Paul was in prison and he was happy to be there and he was willing to be there because he understood the calling that he had received from God. 
He understood that he had been bought with a price, like I said, that he belonged to God. He understood that he had been brought from death to life. He understood that, that all believers, especially Gentile believers, they had been brought from not belonging to God's people to belonging to God's family. He understood that God is creating this new humanity, and therefore he was willing to be in prison writing this amazing letter because he understood his calling. He understood the hope of the calling that we all have. And this hope is the, unif the unifying of all things in Christ. And so with that said, he urges them, he exhorts them, he begs them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Have you ever wondered uh, what the name of our church means? Kaleo? I had someone, thank you, I had someone uh, say that they drove past this building multiple times thinking that this was a Greek Orthodox church because it is a Greek, it is a Greek word. And guess what? In this passage, it actually shows up. Uh, I'm not one to, you know, bring up all the Greek and all that stuff. But in this passage, it actually, the word Kaleo is right there. And the word Kaleo is to call. And so basically, Paul is saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the word is kaleo, right? Well, not exactly kaleo, it's intellectual part. Moving on. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the point of, uh, you know, Nathan is the one that came up with, with the name for the church kaleo, but I understand that his point was to make sure that we all understood that we have been called, that we have a calling, that God has actually called us to himself. And so this is what Paul is telling them. You need to walk, you need to live, you need to behave in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And as I was mentioning at the beginning, this calling is the calling of belonging to God's new humanity through which God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth to himself. But like I asked at the beginning, if you were entrusted with the task of unifying the world, what would be your approach? How would you start to unify the world? And, you know, like I said, hypothetically, well, we need to make sure we find a, a charismatic leader. We need to make sure we find, you know, someone who is powerful or people who are powerful. We need to make sure that we, you know, have the best music and, and the best everything. Well, that's not how Paul envisions it. That's not how the Bible envisions the beginning of this unification. He says, this is accomplished, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. If you want to accomplish unity, number one, we need to realize that unity the, uni the, the unification of all things, of all the cosmos, of all the universe, begins with the church. If the, if, think about this for a second. If we want the whole cosmos, the whole universe to be unified, but the church is not unified, then how is that even going to work, right? And so Paul envisions the unity of the church first and foremost. Before the whole cosmos can be unified, the church has to be unified. And how is the church unified? Well, it is unified with all 
as we live with all humility, as we walk with all humility. Humility was not a value that was, uh, uh, or, or it, w- it was not a, a, a trait that was valued by the Romans or by the Greeks. It was actually despised. They hated it. But then Jesus comes and he says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. I am gentle and humble. These are the literal two words that are used in this verse when it says walking with humility and gentleness. Jesus himself, our Lord, is saying, learn from me, for I am humble. I am gentle. And this is what Paul tells the Philippians when he's talking to them about humility. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, we can start reading in uh, verse 3. This is what Paul tells them about humility. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So this is humility. Humility is counting others as more significant than yourself. It is looking not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. This is true humility, looking at the interests of others and saying, I am going to give priority to their interests over mine. That is humility. How are we to accomplish this kind of humility? How are we to live out, to walk in this kind of humility? Well, we have the greatest example of humility here in Philippians um, Philippians 2. If you continue reading in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's saying, look at the example of Jesus. He was with God. He was in the form of God, and he did not count that as something that you know, he would hold on to Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus, the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of the universe, he took the form of a servant. That is humility. Being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to know what humility is? Look at Jesus, who went from being in the form of God, not only to becoming a human, to becoming a servant, to becoming, uh, you know, to going lower and lower and lower, but he humbled himself to the point of death, and not any kind of death, death on a cross, the worst possible death at the time. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if Jesus himself had to humble himself before he was exalted, before that uni- the unification and uh, of of Uh, heaven and earth and under the earth would happen, what makes us think that as a church, we shouldn't follow his example of humility? If Jesus, our Lord, humbled himself, we should be the most humble of all people. 
we should follow his example of humility and of gentleness. Gentleness is when we, uh, when we are willing to give up our rights, when we are willing to give up our preferences for the sake of a greater cause. Gentleness is not necessarily someone who doesn't have power. Rather, it's someone who is able to, to control that power for the sake of a greater purpose, which in this case, that greater purpose is the unity of the church. And once again, I remind you that Jesus speaks of himself as the one who is gentle and humble, gentle and lowly. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. Gentleness is the opposite of quarrelsome. It is actually very telling if you go to 2 Timothy verse 2. Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 24. This, these verses are describing a leader of the church. And notice what the Bible has to say specifically about the leaders of the church. It says, and the Lord's servant, I mean, first of all, it calls the leader, it calls it a servant, right? But it says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. And that word kind is actually gentle. He must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. So there definitely is a correction aspect, but how does this correction happen? It says, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So how are we supposed to accomplish unity in the church? How are we supposed to exemplify unity to the world if we ourselves as a church are not being humble? If our leaders are not being gentle but actually are being quarrelsome? Then it says, with patience. God is described in the Bible over and over as a patient God. Think about all the times in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel sinned against God and God gave them another chance. Think about all the times when they, you know, went out of Egypt. I, I tell this story to my kids all the time. They probably hate it by now. But think about the time when they were in the wilderness and how they were complaining. They had just left Egypt. They had just been delivered from Egypt and they're like, we want to go back to Egypt. We would, we would rather die in Egypt than die here in the sea. They're just complaining. We're hungry. We're hungry. I, you can probably, if you're a parent of little kids, you probably understand why. You probably understand what my, my point in telling this story is, right? We're hungry. We're hungry. Well, <laughs> look at what happened to the Israelites when they were complaining about being hungry. But more than that, look at God's patience towards Look at God's patience toward you. I mean, that should be, that should really, you know, help us grow in our parenting, right? Because a lot of the times I, as a parent, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not patient with my kids. But when I look at God's patience for me, when I look at all the times that, I, that I've sinned against God, 
and that he has not destroyed me in his wrath, but he has been patient with me. And so God is patient with us. And if we want to have unity in the church, we have to be patient too. And then it says, bearing with one another in love. This bearing with one another is accepting others. Is is, uh, not simply tolerating others. Although, yeah, you know, there's definitely a tolerance of, of, of our brothers and sisters. But it is actually accepting them. Is welcoming them. There are many organizations, there are many social clubs, and they are united around some commonality, right? I, I mean, you know, can't think of a, of a club right now, but, you know, the, the CrossFit people, well, they're united around the idea that they like to work out, you know, or the, the Chris, what is that? Uh, dungeons and something. There we go, Dungeons and Dragons. You know, they unite around the fact that they like to play this game that I still do not understand. <laughs> or, or, you know, whatever. Like, the point is, these groups are usually united because they have this thing in common. But there's not really that much merit to a group where you join with people that you have a lot of things in common, right? But there's nothing supernatural. You like these things, but if you, you know, if you happen to disagree on something that is more significant than just your, your liking this game, well, then you divide, right? You, you don't play with that person again, or you don't work out with that person again, or whatever. But the thing about the church, the thing about the unity of the church is that it's actually supernatural. It's, it's the unity uh, of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that is actually keeping us united. And this is, this is really good because it means that we, what we have in common is so much more uh, uh, or so much stronger than just, you know, little preferences. Like, we're, I thought it was funny last, I think it was last week when we announced, you know, that we have a gluten-free cracker for communion. But uh, unfortunately, they have almonds. So, you know, I'm sorry, people with almond uh, allergies. But, you know, we are not united just because we have dietary uh, uh, needs or because we're gluten-free, right? We're, we were joking about our national community. Uh, we have so many dietary needs. And Elena and I met a new uh, a couple. We met our neighbors. Well, it turns out that our neighbors are um, vegetarians. So we're like, oh boy, I don't think we should invite them to our missional community. We already have way too many dietary needs to add a, a vegetarian in the mix. But anyway, that's besides the point. The point is that the union that we have in Christ is supernatural. The kind of union that we have in Christ means that even if you're vegetarian and I'm, all, you know, and I'm, I don't know what it's called, like someone who only eats meat, like, well, carnivore, but there's, isn't that like a name of someone, like you told me about someone who like only eats meat. What would you call that? Meatitarian. All right. Okay. My point is the unity of the church is such that even when we have disagreements, even when we have things, when we, when there are things that we do not have in common, when we think differently in terms of politics, or when we think differently uh, um, on how we should raise our children, or or when we, you know, when we meet that brother or sister that is a little bit weird and you know quirky, and we just have a hard time accepting them, 
we look at this passage and say, no, we are actually called to bear with one another in love. We are called to accept them because we are members of the same body. Because this unity that we have is a unity of the Spirit. We are not just united because we like the same things. We are united because God has called us to the same family. And that's why we accept others. That's why we bear with their weirdness or that's why we bear with their their faults and that's why we bear with even sometimes the the times that they sin against us or that they offend us because we are members of the same body because we have the same calling and i think all of this can be summarized in love right it says uh, bearing with one another in love i believe that this is the definition of love love is Treating each other with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with uh, uh, bearing with one another. Do you want to have a successful marriage? Well, these are the qualities that you should be pursuing. Do you want to have a, a united family? These are the qualities that you should be pursuing. Do you want to have a unified church? These are the qualities that we should be pursuing. I don't know if you remember... Uh, a few weeks ago, like two, um, I said something about it. It it takes more than just a bunch of uh, a bunch of nice people to keep a church together. And you know, this passage, someone could quote this passage and say, "Well, actually, you know, Ben, we we need nice people for a church to be gathered together. We need people that are humble, that are gentle, that are, that are patient, that bear with one another." Yes, absolutely, we need that. But my point, and I was talking about Ephesians uh, 2, verse 21, it's talking about Jesus, and it says that in whom, in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Yes, we need people with these qualities to keep a church together, but the thing is that these qualities are not natural to us. We need Christ to be the one who is gluing us together. We need Christ who is the cornerstone to keep us together, to join us together, to give us the supernatural ability to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to bear with one another, to be loving to one another. We need Christ to transform our hearts and give us these qualities. Without him, we are not able to keep the unity to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In verse 3, here is the exhortation, and I think this is one of the most underemphasized uh, commands in Scripture. It says that they should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is not optional. Unity is not collateral or passive or something that happens by accident. Unity is something that, we, that should be pursued. Unity is something that we should be eager to maintain, that we should make it a priority to maintain. And I think, you know, when you think of the, of the bigger picture, it only makes sense, right? Like, if God is unifying all things to himself, but the church cannot be united, then how will the world believe that God is actually about unification, right? If the church is so divided, 
not just locally, but, or, or I mean, not just, you know, little local churches, but, you know, the church on, on, the, on the harbor or the church in this country or the church in the world, if the church is so divided, then the world looks at the church and says, what are you talking about? This reconciliation and unification of all things. If, if, look at you guys. You're not even able to, to stay together. And so I think that's why he is emphasizing so strongly that we should make it a priority to pursue, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because if God is unifying all things, he is starting with the church. And when the church is united, then the world sees and they are attracted to this incredible plan that God has to unify all things. When the church is united, God can show the rulers and, and principalities in the heavenly places his manifold wisdom. This is what, what it says in, in chapter 3, um, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When the church is united, God is glorified in the heavenly places. When the church is united, the demonic forces look at it and they cannot help, but they have to acknowledge God's wisdom. They have to acknowledge God's glory because they see that the church is unified. But when the church is divided, the name of God is scorned. The name of God is, uh, um, we, are, we are offending the name of God. So in verses 4 through 6, he is telling them the reality. He is telling them the, the heavenly the, the, uh, the positional reality of the church so that the church can work towards this reality. So it, think of it in terms of like sanctification or, or justification, right? We know that we are justified before God. We know that we are, we are righteous in God's eyes because of the work of Jesus, and yet we are called to live righteous lives. We are called to pursue righteousness. We are called to sanctify ourselves, right? To grow in our righteousness. And so in the same way, I think that what's going on here is we are being reminded that we are already one. We are already united. There's not multiple churches. There's not multiple gods, multiple Jesuses. No, there's one. But we are called to work towards that reality. We are called to become what we already are positionally. And so he is telling them there is, verse 4, there is one body. There's not multiple bodies. There's only one body. This means that we and River of Life and Foursquare and Calvary Chapel and uh, the uh, Moines Bible Chapel, we are members of the same body. There's not multiple bodies. There's only one. Now, I know that there are people who might use this as an excuse of saying, oh, see, I don't have to commit to a local body. I mean, we are all members of the body, right? I'm a member of the invisible, the universal church. Well, yeah, but the universal church shows itself up in individual, uh, sorry, not individuals, but in, in you know, particular local churches, right? In fact, if you were not a part of a local church, if you were not committed to a local church, you would have never read this letter, right? If you would have been a believer in Ephesus who said, oh, 
You know, I'm just a member of the individual body of Christ. You wouldn't even know the concept of the, uh, sorry, of the invisible body of Christ because you would have never read, the, the letter to the Ephesians would, would have never been read to you. So there is one body, there is one spirit, right? And he's already addressed all of these things in the first half of the letter. There's one spirit through whom we have access to the Father. It's not like you access the Father in a different way than your brother or sister on the other side of the world. You might access the Father in a different language, but we access the Father through the same Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, we all have the same hope, the hope of the unifying of all things, the hope of the unifying of heaven and earth. We all have the same hope. Our hope is not that we are going to go to heaven when we die. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's really good. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord. We're, we're Maybe, I don't know, but we might even see people that have already died and we might have fellowship with them. But our ultimate hope is that heaven and earth will be united. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus will come down from heaven and will finally unify the whole universe under his rule. That is our hope. And that is a hope for all believers. That is a hope for the believers in Mexico, for the believers in Spain, for the believers here on the harbor, for all believers. That is our hope. That God is unifying and is reconciling the world to himself. We have one Lord. We have one faith, one baptism. You were not saved in a different way or through a different means than your brother or sister elsewhere. We all were saved through faith in Jesus Christ. There is one baptism. We are all initiated into God's family in the same way. There's not different baptisms. There is only one baptism. We're on, we're all, uh, uh, we all start our faith in the same way. I, I, I almost think, I, I, I don't know, you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I almost feel like Paul here is saying we all put on our pants one leg at a time. He's saying we are all members of this same thing. We are all, none of us is better than the other. We are all members of the same thing and therefore we should be unified. Verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We worship the God of the universe, the only God that there is. We worship him. And therefore, if, if these things do not motivate us to be unified, then nothing else will. And so I think that we need to be very, very cautious against division. The devil loves division. He wants to divide us. He wants to to plant little seeds of disagreement, and he wants to divide us, and we need to be extremely careful against division. Because, you know, because of all of these things that I just said, like I, I could pull a Paul in you and say, therefore, because of all of these things that I just preached, we should be on guard against the division of the enemy. We should pray for unity. We should abide in Christ. We should always be relying on Christ. We should always be uh, at drawing from God's grace and learning from him, learning his humility, learning his gentleness, learning about his patience and his bearing with one another, learning 
the love of Christ and, and really dwelling in the love of Christ, abiding, experiencing his love. And so right now we're we're gonna that's exactly what we're gonna do. We're going to take communion together. And as we take communion, it says that we, you know, it says that we should examine our hearts and it says that we should um I can't remember the exact wording, but it says that we should discern the body of Christ, I believe. And so now that we understand, now that we have a deeper understanding of what the body of Christ is, that the body of Christ is actually us, is the church. So when we take communion, when we come and grab of the bread, grab the cup, let us be thinking about the work of Christ on the cross. Let us be thinking about his sacrifice for us, his love for us, his humility, his gentleness, his patience, his, uh, um, his bearing with our sins. But let us also be remembering and thinking, how can I put these things to practice with my fellow brothers and sisters, with my family, with my fellow members of the body of Christ? And so I would encourage you, if you are being convicted, if God is convicting you of, of any kind of divisiveness, or if God is convicting you of maybe not working hard enough to promote the unity of the church, I would encourage you to not come just yet, to spend some time in your seat, to ask God for his forgiveness. If there is a specific brother or sister that you know that there is division there, I encourage you to go to them, talk to them, ask for their forgiveness and discern what it means to be members of the body of Christ, and then come and grab the bread, grab the cup. And then at the end of this hymn that we're going to sing, uh, we will take communion together as one body. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you are reconciling all things through the cross of your son, Jesus. Things on earth, things in heaven. Thank you, God, that we get to be a part of this unification process. We get to be a part of the body. We get to be the body of your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that we would be united as a family, that we would have a supernatural union that is only accomplished by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that this unity would be evident in our families, that this unity would be evident in, in, our, uh, relation, in the relationships that we have at work, uh, the relations that we have with our neighbors. I pray that this unity would be extremely evident to the world. And we pray that you would bring more and more people to this family, Lord. Please use us as your instruments. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his gentleness, his humility, his patience, his uh, endurance and bearing with our burdens. Thank you for his love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So whenever you are ready, as we sing this next song, just come and grab uh, the elements, bring them back to your seat, and at the end of the song, we'll take them together.